Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Renowned as one of Australia's golden girls, Stephanie Rice has had a successful 10-year career as an elite swimmer. At the age of 17, she broke onto the world stage after an amazing performance with two gold medals at the Melbourne 2006 Com Games. She then went on to win three gold medals at the Beijing Olympics, all within record time, making her absolutely, obviously, the best in the world. We talked a lot in this conversation about identity and transitions, and Steph has had a few. The highs, so coming home after those Beijing Olympics and being absolutely caught up in that media whirlwind of being the golden girl in swimming in Australia and and I guess her face really being everywhere and how that was great but also a tough transition to make. And we spoke about the, the lows, so then four years later going to the London Olympics and how that was tough, carrying a shoulder injury, training being underdone and not being able to meet the same level that she had only four years previously. Then it was retirement out of that and what that transition was like into life now and what was important for Steph was actually to get clear on what mattered to her. One of the things she did do was sign up for a reality TV show, Celebrity Apprentice, and actually went on to become the youngest ever winner worldwide at the age of 24. So we spoke a little bit about what that experience was like and actually the intensity of training helped her in that environment. Steph is now an entrepreneur of a company called Race Rice, where she's about to launch children's swimwear as well as healthy bars and really has a lot of aspiration goals about how she can serve and give back to her community. This is a really insightful conversation, one that I know that you are going to enjoy. So sit back and take in all that is Stephanie Rice. Steph, welcome to the recording studio. It's awesome to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited. I'm excited to share. There's so many things, uh, jumping off points that I want to get in with you, but I think it's probably useful to start, obviously, with your your swimming career. And there's a lot of, I guess, people who got to a, a very high level in swimming who might say that they they actually started swimming from a very young age and just always kind yeah. of took to it. But your story is a bit different. You actually came to swimming a bit later, relatively. Yeah, in... I um, well, I started swimming young, like um, every child does in Australia, learn to swim at school and club nights. And I always loved swimming. But it wasn't really until I was um, 10, 11, where I decided, oh, I want to do this um, I was doing it as a hobby and, and kind of playing around with it and loved it, but wasn't really taking it seriously as a sporting activity and competition. So at about 10, 11, I got to a new coach, a new program and started training a lot more seriously. And then I did another big jump like that again at about 13, 14. And I won my first competition like in Australia for a 14 year old um, at that time, which was huge because I hadn't really won much stuff before that in Brisbane or any anything. So yeah, that was, I know when I won the six gold medals as a 14 year old at age nationals, it was the pivoting moment in my career that this could be something that I do like as a business or as a career, not just as something on the side of school. Right. So, and even leading up to that, the intensity of training and the focus um, of the unknown, what, what that would be like, where did that drive come from? 
um, passion and love. I just always loved it. And uh, when I speak with uh, young swimmers or athletes, that's like my number one thing because if you don't love it, there's always undoubtedly going to be challenges or times that you don't want to be there, um, times that things go wrong. And so without having this underlying passion or purpose or drive for something, um, it just won't sustain. So I just always loved being in the water. I loved the freedom it gave me. And when I was in school, I actually didn't have a lot of friends in primary school. I just never really fitted in with the girls in my class. And um, I was I felt like I was never really accepted because I wasn't really one of them. And then it didn't help as I got older that I couldn't go to school gatherings and functions because I was training. So I found my people in the swimming club and being good at swimming gave me a huge amount of my identity. I am now the swimmer. That's kind of what made me cool at school. And that was a, a big driver for me, building confidence as a young female. And um, and then, so I guess, obviously, and then finishing swimming, there was a lot of work to do on that. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get to that yeah, around the, that transition out of that career. But you talk about so that 14 mm. being very pivotal. So what changed when you came back? You went, right, six gold medals. <laughs> <laughs> this is something I'm good at. Let's let's rip in. What, what shifted then? Well, to be honest, the shift happened before in order to see those results. So as a 13-year-old, I came sixth at age nationals and um, that was an, another big jump for me. But, you know, making a final at age national level, getting to travel as a part of competing um, just lifted my spark for, hey, I've had some really big progress here. If I work really hard for another year, I might be able to get on the podium you know, the following year and just so happened that I came back and won six gold medals that year. So the transition of 13 to 14 was um, a lot more just mental focus. You know, I was turning up to training with a focus in mind, focusing on how I could execute each session to the best of my ability. Um, what other things could I be doing outside of the swimming that would assist in my training or um, me being a better athlete, whether it was um, nutrition or getting better equipment and things like that. I just started to pay more attention. Um, and then, yeah, the results came through and really that was, I guess, the liftoff because um, I made a junior Australian teams as a 14, 15, 16-year-old and then made it to my first senior team being Commonwealth Games as a 17-year-old. So it was a really nice trajectory for me. <laughs> it was exponential by yeah. the sounds of it. Yeah. Like, yeah. So you're just building on one from another. Yeah, I really did. Like I, yeah, won medals as a 14, 15, 16-year-old. I went to Commonwealth Games as a 17-year-old. I won two gold medals there. I mean, there were challenges, obviously, and obstacles to work through, but there wasn't, I'm not the type of athlete that had some tragic moment that that found me to have drive to change something or do something. And for a long time, I felt like that didn't give me a powerful story because I didn't have something that was dramatic. Um, but then I realised there's a lot of people that... Um, you know, have awareness to what's going on in each moment that you don't let something go super disastrous as well. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't mm. it? That you can almost feel guilty about. Yeah, not I did. Having... I felt, well, I felt like I couldn't do public speaking because mm. I don't have something big to uh, share. Yeah, my story um, is I did the work. I got the results. <laughs> yeah, I got the work. Yeah, exactly. I worked hard, um, and I had awareness for when things were going wrong, or I was analysing all the time what could be done better. So it wasn't like I had a disastrous year and then realised, hey, I need to change something. I would realise those things in the moment. Yeah. And did that passion and focus come from your family? Were they supportive? Like how much of that was an influence on where you wanted to head? I imagine a lot of that was just mental focus, as you say, Mm -hmm. right, how do I take this all on board? Having a coach and and probably a swim squad that was supporting that you were a part of. But how much um, did that family influence also? My family has always been incredibly supportive of my swimming career in saying that they were never um, willing to just let me do it and not focus on school. Um, It was always drummed into me that school was an education were a priority and if you can maintain good results at school, then you can continue doing the swimming. So um, it was actually good that they weren't just like forcing me to be a swimmer, you know, kind of thing. Um, But the drive absolutely came from me. Um, When I was in primary school, uh, we applied for a scholarship to the school um, given I'd just started to win some medals and they said no. Um, and the school uh, headmaster, who was a man, said that I would never be a swimmer or an elite athlete because I didn't have the body for it. And I was in grade six or seven at the time and it didn't really affect me. Like I just sort of thought, oh, well, like you don't see the vision, so yeah. <laughs> where are we going? Yeah. And then mum decided you, you either have to choose like kind of staying at this school, paying, you know, premium girls' prices and swimming and travel and everything or, you know, pick another school. And so we applied for another school and I remember having the meeting with the headmaster and she I said to me, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I want to be an Olympic swimmer. Like it was just so crystal clear to me that that was my purpose and this is why I was here and I'm going to this school because you're going to help me get there. And she was like, all right, let's, how do we do it? And I remember mum being like, oh, really? Like, are you sure? Like she was, had never really heard me say those words before and really known that that was my goal and vision. Um, so Amazing, was, right? Yeah. yeah, it definitely came from me. And, um, but in saying that, I needed all the other things around me to work in order for me to achieve that as well and or have every possible chance of achieving it. Incredible to have that environment of someone you've just met to go, right, let's Yeah, let's she just saw it. Yeah. She saw the vision. She saw it in me and that was really empowering. Um, and she was the first one to message my mom after I'd won three golds at the Olympics. Like even when I'd finished school, like she still is supportive of what I'm doing, which is really nice um, yeah. to know that it wasn't just about – yeah, the funding of the school or the school notoriety. It was much more than that. Yeah, personal yeah. level. So I guess, yeah, move forward from that, it coming out of your mouth in that conversation to 2012 Beijing Olympics and you're there at the Olympic ceremony, uh, opening ceremony of the Olympics. What's that like? Yeah, well... Um, 2008 was a complete whirlwind, really. Um, To make the Olympics, it was a hard enough challenge in itself, having to come first and second, and then also having to go under a specific qualifying time. Um, The 400 medley, which was one of my main races, is on day one of an Olympic program, which usually is on the last day. So Mm. to get up and do what's arguably the hardest program um, event on the program on the first day when you're nervous and everything was a big 
challenge. Mm. Um, and I remember having, you know, my prep uh, prep conversation with my coach right before the race, um, before the final of the Fortnum medley at the trials, and he said, like, we don't want to break any world records at this meet. Like, we just want to go into the Olympics, like, qualify and not have the target on our back and just, you know, kind of go under the radar. And I was so annoyed that he'd said to me that because we'd never discussed world records. We'd never, I didn't know who held the world record or what time it was. My time was about eight seconds slower than the world record. So I was like, why are you adding all this extra pressure to me right now <laughs> in this yeah. moment? And um, I was really frustrated and went to the marching room and did this race. And I remember it being just a really surreal race. The crowd was so loud. I couldn't tell if I was going really fast or if everyone else was going really slow because I was so far in front. And then touched the wall and turned around and it was like world record on the big screen in front of me. And I just swore on national television. Right. <laughs> so classy. No media training, obviously. Yeah, that's and, real. <laughs> um, and ran over to my coach in like tears and excitement. And I was like, oh my God, like I've broken a world record. And he just said the first thing to me, I told you not to break the oh, world Steph. record. <laughs> I was like, are you joking? Uh, you should say, can you tell me more often? Like, because Shut up. <laughs> Seriously. But, um, but I guess in after finishing the meet, I broke another world record at that meet. Um, and going back to the training pool as a world record holder, number one in the world, about to go into my first Olympics um, with the target on my back. Now everyone wants to beat me. Um, very different preparation because I'd never prepared like that before. I'd never prepared as number one. I'd only ever prepared as this is the number one and what do I need to do to beat them? So it was a really different perception um, How did shift. that change your mindset? Like yeah, that? a lot um, because it was no longer about, um, I guess, what was really good about it was I had so much confidence because I'd had this achievement. I knew I was capable of winning um, and I just needed to improve on myself. So I stopped really comparing to what other times people were going or other meets that they were doing, what they were looking like. I was just like, what I have been doing is working. So let's just fine tune that and just focus in more on myself. Um, and that really worked because when it got to Olympics, I wasn't worried about how everyone else was going to swim the race. I just was focused on myself and managed to walk away with three golds, three world records. So what were you saying to yourself on the blocks before? No, nothing. Before My mind going, was like numb at like, that time. Yeah. yeah, like the nervousness really happens in the marshalling room right. or in the hour before the race starts, um, you do your warm-up, I chat to my coach for 10, 15 minutes, put on a suit, racing suit, which takes anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes to get on, like it's a workout <laughs> Do you need in help itself. as well? Like yeah, it's like on. putting on the skinniest <laughs> pair of jeans that you've ever put on. Um, yeah, so punishing. And then... Sitting in the marshalling area is the worst because you're kind of in a locked-off room. There's no windows. You can't see out. You don't really know what's happening out there, what the atmosphere is like on pool deck. So when you stand up and you walk out onto pool deck, it's like this rush of energy that you feel from within the pool. And do you feed off that? Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's when I actually get excited. I'm like, okay, we're here now. Like, this is the moment. So... Like, let's just do this. It's not like, oh, it's coming up soon and we need to make sure that this goes right. It was kind of like switching into autopilot, as we like to call it, just kind of, yeah, flowing with the moment and the energy. And then standing behind the blocks, it was it was kind of more like, 
yeah, let's, I'm ready, let's go. Like, and always thinking before a 400 medley, in four and a half minutes it'll be over, so. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, yeah, yeah. Four, 20 four minutes, seconds. 29, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry it up, yeah, right. Mm. Um, going back a little bit, my question is why medley? Like what, what you, because obviously you can mm. do all four um, yeah. of the strokes. So <laughs> Just how <not> is well that? <laughs> is there a choice? Was that a conscious choice? Like how do yeah. you make that call? Yeah, it really was a conscious choice. Um, I had always been good at all the strokes. Um, when I was younger, I'd be really good at butterfly. And then the next week I'd be like, my favourite strokes, backstroke to my mum. And she'd be like, the next week it was breaststroke. Like I just had a different <laughs> favourite all the time. And um, it was it was always just whatever I was doing better in. Um, and I had ability to put them all together in a race. And at the time, um, like I was explaining before, in order to make a, um, a, a representative team for Australia, you have to come number one or two. And I was, my best stroke was always butterfly. But at the time there was Susie O'Neill and Patria Thomas, both in Australia swimming butterfly races. So in order for me to even get onto a Commonwealth Games team or a world championships or Olympic team, I have to pretty much be the world record holder because I have to beat Susie or Patria. We've got the best. Yeah. And yeah. I just knew that uh, that would be really hard for me. It would be it would be a really big ask, and it would take maybe instead of making it on the team at seventeen, it might be twenty three, um, like waiting for them to finish in order to make it on. Really, and at the time there was not a lot of people in Australia doing well on an international level at individual medley in the two hundred and the four hundred. So there was an opening, and I just took it. Um, had ability to be able to put them all together and we started specifically training for medley races, not just training for butterfly here and backstroke there. And um, and then as I progressed through meets, I managed to be able to, you know, swim with Libby in the 100 butterfly and represent Australia in 100 backstrokes and stuff like that, which was very different than when I first started. Combining them all. Yeah. 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 So you've gone to the Olympics, got three gold medals, mm-hmm. um, world records yeah. there as well. Yeah, three in Beijing. So coming home, what was that like? Yeah, crazy. Um, it's hard to describe because I feel like we've evolved so much since 2008 as, <laughs> as social media and internet and everything. Uh, so in Beijing, really, I think there was like a little bit of Facebook, but it was just your own profile. It wasn't fan pagey kind of stuff. Um, wasn't a lot of access to internet. So I didn't really know what was going on in Australia. I just felt like, oh yeah, I won this thing and we'll just go home and like go back to normal life. And well, that was just a big mistake. Everyone <laughs> now knows Steph Rice. <laughs> and I remember walking off the plane in, you know, the Qantas hangar in Sydney and it was just a media storm for six hours hours and it was media every day for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. And at the start, it was amazing. I loved it because I I always loved that aspect of being an athlete. Like if, if I could be like somewhat of a celebrity in the process of doing this, that would be so cool. Because I looked at, you know, Susie O'Neill and Grant Hackett on the cover of Wheat Bix things when you're young and you're like, that's so cool. Like I'd love to be that person. Um, what's the drive behind that? Like, what's Well, I think it was you? always wanting to be a role model, always wanting to be someone I knew from a really young age that um, I didn't come here just to sort of fit in. I always knew that I came to sort of shift things up a little bit and if I could be a role model and help other people in the process of that, that always brought me a lot of fulfilment. So being able to, um, yeah, 
do media interviews and whatever always helped. And I think because of being at school and not necessarily having a lot of confidence and friends that sort of fulfilled an aspect of that insecurity as well at the time. Um, so yeah, I loved it. Um, but it was just became a job and not necessarily something that was an added fun thing. And now there were rules on how you needed to talk and what you needed to say. And, and it became like, just like I was, I was like literally working three full-time jobs, like one in the pool, one in the media, and then one trying to be the best daughter you can be at home. And it was just, it was all a bit much. Yeah, and I imagine it's all hours and it's intense. And yeah. As you say, there's, there's rules. Well, there's never an off switch. Um, and that's, I think, what became hard because it wasn't, it wasn't about just now oh, doing an interview and then it's over and I don't have to be this person in, in, in the interview anymore. It was everything, going to the grocery store, going out for a couple of drinks with friends. It was everyone almost interviewing you and then social media became like more just dominant in terms of a media sense and yeah so everywhere I went there were photos or people asking questions and it just became like I couldn't ever switch off. Yeah so where's that space? Yeah Yeah, there was none. (laughs) So with all of that going on the success from the swimming was it back to swimming was it back to okay what's next? Yeah I think that's where I always found my own um peace and confidence was just being in the water, but balancing sponsorship commitments um, and the funding that they bought, because swimming doesn't fund really that well, um, not like your footballs and things. I can't really live off a swimming salary so much. So I relied also on the endorsements and was so grateful for those alignments that it became sort of trying to balance the swimming training, which I knew I needed to do in order to keep having success to retain the media stuff, but balance those commitments that were funding, yeah, this lifestyle that I loved living. So that was really hard. 2009, I really struggled. Um, and to be honest, don't feel like I really found a, um, a balance with all of it. It wasn't really until, um, yeah, I just sort of realised that, you know what, I have to say no to these things because if I don't stand up in London and do the races and the performances that I want to do, I'll only hate myself for it. So I can't blame anyone else for those things. And I just decided to, yeah, focus back on swimming. Yeah, because it's taking time away from the the pool or I'm feeling tired because of a late night interview or whatever. Yeah, flying everywhere as well um, takes a lot out of you. So you went to London Olympics? Yes. And what was that meet like for you? Well, it was just awful. (laughs) Like um, the whole, it wasn't the meet that was awful. It was the preparation. Um, I tore the tendon in my shoulder in December of 2011, which is about three months out of the Olympic trials. And I went to the physio and just said like, oh, so do I need to have a session off or like what's the protocol for fixing this little shoulder problem that's currently happening? Because I always had shoulder problems. And he was like, oh no, Steph, like it's a six month surgery. And I was like, well, I don't have time for a six month surgery because Olympic trials are in three. Um, So we ended up just having a really like quick little surgery to try and clean up any of the abrasions that might affect things um, and get straight back into training. Uh, So preparing for the trials, I was quite um, underworked because I was hadn't really had the preparation I needed. And doing things like instead of training Monday to Saturday, I was training Monday to Sunday because I had to 
pretty much I was just trying to find time to put more sessions in. So there was never an off switch really and that became quite draining but I also knew I had to do it. So um, made the team for London um, and then the shoulder just progressively got worse and worse and worse because I didn't actually repair the tear. It was sort of just getting more torn every time I would train and compete so it just got worse. And leading into London I was averaging in the pool about 30 to 35 kilometres a week um, compared to leading into Beijing where I was doing 60 to 65 k's a week. So I was doing almost half of the kilometres that I was doing in the pool um, and to race a foreign medley you need kilometres. So it just became like really hard mentally to prepare. Um, I then had like a really bad bout of food poisoning two weeks before the London Olympics, combining that with the shoulder um, inconsistency in the pool. I was just drained by the time London came around and I just was ready. I was like going to be so relieved when the prep was over and that was not any way to prepare for an Olympics. But I just, it was like I was trying so hard to make everything so perfect and everything went wrong. And um, there are a lot of lessons that I took out of it, but I remember at the time thinking, why has this happened to me and why has it happened now? Like, why didn't it happen last year mm. or, or the next year? <laughs> and um, those lessons or questions that anyone asks themselves in times of adversity sometimes don't find the answer until you have hindsight. And I think that's what I tried to find, I guess, in the years after London yeah, you're right. I think a lot of people, you know, if, when stuff happens, it's always the worst time and it's always, oh, of you course. know, it never kind of fits right here. And I imagine sometimes it's it was probably the worst situation if if you had gotten to the point where you actually couldn't even get into London or didn't meet their team or the injury was so bad that you actually had to say, no, mm. that yeah. that's a tough call, but it's easier than having make it but not be prepped the way you exactly. had wanted to. I yeah, well, I just wanted to be able to finish the races in London knowing I couldn't have done anything better, whether that was you know, like obviously putting in 100% to the race, but the training and the nutrition and the strength work, I was just like, I'm just going to make sure that I don't walk away without regrets. Because if I walk away with regret and disappointment for the swim, it will be like a double whammy. Um, so I definitely don't have any regrets through my swimming career. And I did better than I deserved in London. Like I came fourth, which is like a pretty great achievement. Huge. I just, um, it was just, it didn't feel great. Yeah. Um, but it also brought me a lot of gratitude for what had happened four years earlier and how, per- like how grateful I was that everything lined up perfectly for me in that prep. Right. So it's so, interesting the hindsight yeah. comes from this success that yeah. I had and, and what I was able to create and prepare yeah. for. And it also made me realise how big of an achievement it was because when it happened to me, when I won in Beijing, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, like I won. Um but then in London, not winning and watching other people win and stand on the dais and stuff, I was like, wow, like that is so amazing what they've done. And then being like, oh, like I've done that. So it didn't actually really hit me until London, the extremity of what I had achieved. Yeah. Yeah. Which is huge as well yeah. in, in part of um, pulling that into who you are and, and what you have been able to be successful in. So yeah. London, you've gone through that in London. Um you come home and it's not ideal, but, you know, you were able to do the best you could under the circumstances yeah. that you were in. Um, and so the following year, 2013, you then go on to become the youngest winner of Celebrity Apprentice <laughs> around the world at the age of 24. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about going from London to that. Yeah, it was 
It was actually the perfect timing because um, I wanted to get out of Brisbane just because it was all I knew was swimming here and swimming friends and swimming everything. So I got the offer to be a part of it and I've always loved the show. So I, um, yeah, took that on, was in Sydney and I got to just have a fresh mindset. Doing the show um, was actually really great. I loved it because it wasn't about... um, who likes you the most or who's voted or whatever. There was an element of control that I could have on how hard I could work and how much money I could raise for charity and um, and show people who I am outside of just what you see in a quick five-minute interview after a race when you're huffing and puffing. So um, I really liked it. It was hard work. It was really hard work and I felt as though the hard work that was put in wasn't really recognised until the last two or three episodes when there's only three or four people left because, you know, in the first, like, if there was 12 weeks of filming in the first six weeks, I was up till midnight, like, making calls, trying to get people to donate money to the charities and the organisations and stuff, whereas other people were, like, going to dinner and going to bed. And I think that mentality I'd had from training, like, you have to do the hard work in order to be prepared. Then we would come to challenge day and I was like, oh, I've raised, like, 10 grand and other people have raised, like, $400. So that was where I think it started to show later on. Um, And... Learning the skill of asking people for money was the best thing that I learned on that show because it's really hard to raise money for charity. It's like, really it's hard. It's really hard to ask people to donate. And fine-tuning your, I guess, speech and um, also the message in it, like it's not like can you donate, it's like you know, this is why it's important to me and I would love if you could contribute. So I just always found, yeah, sort of that skill was a really amazing one to learn. And what were the boardroom drillings like? Like is it kind of clever editing or is it that intense? uh, Or They were intense for sure and they made it that way. So the production were we weren't allowed to talk when we were in the boardroom, like no one could talk to Mr Boris and it was very like trying to stage the intensity. Um, The boardroom filmings were about six hours, so they were long and just really intense, but I thrive on that because to me that's like race day. Yeah, I'm like race day, like let's go. Um, It was was sort of like three and if you were in the losing team, it was like another two and a half, three hours to go through who would get fired. So, yeah, it could be be really long day. It was filmed, it was one whole day shoot. So, um, but I loved it because it was like, I like direct questioning and I like being honest and authentic in my answers. And I think all the sports um, or athletes that were on the show, no matter what sport they played, uh, seem to handle the boardrooms the best because they're used to constructive criticism and, um, you know what, like I didn't feel as though you did the best job when we had to do this and I would have appreciated maybe next time this, this, this. I love, like I'm like, great, like give me the feedback. How do I be better for next time? You know, what could I have done more of? So I loved that, whereas some people didn't found that to be like a personal attack rather than constructive now that we're here that, to go. raise money. So, yeah, so um, I think that's why I enjoyed it and probably lasted as long as I did. Yeah, and there was a bit of intensity with your relationship and connection with, with Roxy. Was that kind of clever editing or was that part of the the process in that? It definitely wasn't clever editing. There was um, There was definitely a, like a 
energy that was not <laughs> synchronizing. Um, in saying that, I always felt as though it wasn't necessarily the reason. Like, I think I could have been anyone. Um, and and I guess in finishing the show and, um, you know, thinking about it, I mean, it comes up sometimes here and there. I get questioned about it. And it's not just it's not just her. It's like people over social media that will say things or, you know, whatever. Like that that could be anyone really to me. Um, and I've always believed that says more about the person that's directing those lines of things and what's going on inside them to ask those questions or feel that way towards me. And is there something I need to address, you know, within myself. So uh, I don't I don't feel like I ever really try and get into retaliation because um, it only lowers me to a level that I'm not proud of being as a person. Um, and I think it's I, I try to use moments like that as an experience to share maybe how other people that have, you know, bullies or people that they struggle to handle, how can we, yeah, how can we lift from those situations and not let it affect us? Mm. So it's a little window into... Um a, a different life outside of the pool, mm. I imagine, as well. Um, and I think it was kind of a year after that that you kind of announced your retirement. So let's have a chat around that transition mm. from being a swimmer. And as you say, that's so much your identity probably has been since the age of 13, um, yeah. 12, 13, where you, you kind of went, right, this is this is the thing I want to chase after and, and the thing that I got success in. Um how do you how do you make that transition and and what was tough about making that transition and shifting that that identity for you well the the initial decision to stop swimming um i knew when i finished london 2012 that I needed to take time to not make an emotional decision um, because of course I wanted to stop <laughs> after such a grueling and um, yeah disappointing preparation but um I also knew there were aspects that I wasn't focusing on that were positive and that I loved. So, yeah, moving away, um, doing the show and then, yeah, spending about a year, like, asking really big questions to myself um, allowed me to look and go, yeah, I'm so glad that now I don't have to get up at 4.30 and I can have a wine on Friday night and, like, you know, the initial, like, nice little satisfactions. But then I started missing the team and the community and the identity around being a swimmer and competing and the notoriety that comes with all of those things. Um, I started missing those things. And and then I knew that if I only made the decision to keep swimming because I wanted the superficial aspects, that it wouldn't work. Um, and I knew if I really didn't want it in my heart that there will be someone that really does and they'll beat me. So I wasn't willing to go back and give it 98% after I'd given it 100%. So I just thought if you're not going to put you know, your ass on the line and do everything you can here, then don't do it. And that was when I just decided that it's time. And in making that decision, I knew I had to be okay with never potentially feeling the high that I've experienced from competing ever again. And as 24, kind of trying to come to that realisation, it just always made me think, is life going to be downhill now? Right. So I've done the best. Yeah. Like (laughs) I just got like life goals at 24 and like just cruise on through to 80. Like Mm. it's what it felt like for at least a year. And I I think it's great that a lot of athletes are coming out to talk about this transitional period. Um, The pivoting moment for for me came when I had a conversation with um, someone I don't even know who it was. I'd never met them before, but they just said something and it really stuck. And it was, you know, 
what if swimming was the platform to something else? And I had never shifted my perception to be one of using what I've created to go up to not necessarily as a better, like bigger my brand or bigger my celebrity, but how can I use what I've done to, yeah, create opportunities for other people or serve other people in some way that I wouldn't be able to do had I have not had this platform? Why does it have to go backwards or down? And when I, as soon as I shifted that in my mind, everything started to become easier in terms of yeah, understanding that that it wasn't so much like everything was going to be crap now, and actually it could be it could be great in a different way that I haven't experienced before. I just wouldn't know yet. So and that that becomes a platform. Yeah, yeah, that. and that became a platform for me to learn, grow, develop, and analyze myself really, really raw and deep. Who am I? Who is Stephanie Rice? Not who is Stephanie Rice, the swimmer. And um, that self-work that you do is really hard, like anything, um, but has served me so well in the ability to transition gracefully outside of, yeah, swimming into being a businesswoman. And have you got some answers for, for who yeah, you are, for that identity absolutely. now? Um, you know, I no longer think of, of myself with, um, yeah, like superficial taglines. Like, um, so when I have and presented opportunities or partnerships or collaborations, it's always about the values um, and do our values align? Are we after creating the same type of thing? So I, I definitely stand for integrity and authenticity. I won't do anything that doesn't feel real. Um, I love depth and, you know, really not talking on a superficial level. So I love being able to share in, ex- in safe places like this where you can actually learn from someone. Um and being able to do it in a really positive, optimistic way. So um, I get the biggest thrill now out of doing public speaking events or mentoring services because um, it allows me to share what I've learned in order to better serve and help other people. And that's a really amazing thing to do now because sport is so selfish, which it has to be in order to be good at it. And it's really nice now to have the focus not be so much on me, but more on the community and how can I be a vehicle to serve them be better. And that is what I love the most. Exciting. Mm. So um, you're an entrepreneur and you're launching Race Rice, yeah. I understand. So children's swimwear as well as health food bars. Yeah. And and that's really part of your transition, which is going to continue to grow and go. What surprised you about now becoming a, an entrepreneur? Well, I've always like liked the idea of being an entrepreneur and I always felt like I was just because I always seemed to call the shots on my career. Uh, even with sponsorships back in the day, I would take advice from managers and whatever, but if I didn't want to do them, I wouldn't do them. Um, and through that journey of gratefully being able to be a face for other brands, you learn a lot about other companies, what they stand for, how they market and position. And I think I took a lot of that to create race rice um, and the journey of 
I would say I can call myself an entrepreneur now because I have a business running. But the journey to become an entrepreneur was really quite challenging. Obviously, I'm doing it on my own. And so I'm not like the person that's sort of like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, but like I have a whole team of people doing all the actual hard work for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, You're doing the grind. Yeah, like I've done all the stuff and I've had to learn things that I don't know anything about, you know, financials and um investing and insurance and all this stuff that I'm like, all right, well, I have to learn it. So what do I need to know? And surrounding myself with good people. But the hardest part for me has been not necessarily having that community yet. Um, Being a startup, there's, you know, I'm not working with lots of people. But being a startup, you know, it's hard not to have a community of people around you and not have other people to rely on when you don't have days of being super motivated and really pumped. And so I use times like that to either reach out and ask people for help or a bit of guidance or do my own, um, you know, meditating or walking or listen to podcasts, audiobooks, anything that will fuel my mind with something that's a little bit outside of me to reignite the passion again. And we live in a world where it's all at our fingertips yeah. all of those connections. Even yeah. though you feel like you're doing it alone, you can have that tribe behind you. Absolutely. Before we sat down, we were talking a little bit about, um, I guess that, oh, I hate the word balance, but I guess that that vehicle of, you know, wanting to live a big, bold life, to have a big impact, to, as you say, kind of serve a huge uh, amount of people. Mm. And in amongst all that, which is really a busy life as well, um, uh, we can be pulled in a million different directions. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes the big success comes at a cost of, you know, late nights, early mornings. We can lose sight of ourselves and our health. Uh, yeah. It can have an impact on our friendships because we're not, we haven't spoken to yeah. our friends for three months. Um, how do you navigate that? And, yeah. and do you have any. I guess, non-negotiables along the way. I definitely have non-negotiables and in no way I need to preframe that I'm an expert at this because I think I know a lot more because I've taken the time to learn it, but I definitely, like just Wednesday, I was like, oh, well, like my life is so crap. (laughs) And then (laughs) Thursday I'm like loving life again. (laughs) So, um, but I think what I've, uh, the, the, the two big things I've, become aware of is obviously having awareness for how I'm feeling. Um, Am I feeling a little strung out and that I need to take some Steph time? How do you know that? What's your warning sign? Mine is just I start getting a bit agitated or a bit short um, and my mind feels a bit chaotic and I just need to stop the busyness, which we have so much of these days with phones and people around and everything. A quick message here that it doesn't feel – I don't feel – like I am connected to, you know, like my purpose or my higher self or whoever you, whatever you believe that it is, that's kind of the reason that you're here or embracing that. Yeah. Like I know that this is something I'm passionate about. When I lose that and I'm thinking about all the little things, that's when I know I need to take some time. And honestly, going for a 15-minute walk kind of gets me back on track. And the work I do after that is always so much more productive. Um, And the other thing is instead of necessarily – because I get caught up with trying to balance, you know, the four or five different business things that I'm working on as well as then sponsorship and relationships and health and gym time and all this is prioritising. And so at certain times, you know – other projects will become a priority and I just have to be okay to let go that the fact that today won't 
anything won't happen with race rice or I need to take a day away and not do gym today because this is the priority and I know if I don't get this thing done, it will actually make me feel worse than if I go to the gym and, like, don't get that done in my mind. So, yeah, I always just try and think of what's the priority and how I can sort of shuffle and be flexible with the shuffling. Like, having a strict routine doesn't work for me. Um, But I always make sure I work out in some capacity. And it won't be like a vigorous like workout. It could just be a 15-minute walk where I get like free time for myself and I get fresh air and just sort of re-alived. <laughs> um, Has it been hard to, um, to go from hard training, an elite athlete at a world on the world stage um, to then go to training that you've just described that's not as intense. Yeah. Like, like what's been the mindset shift in, in that? The adjustment period was really hard and I think the hardest part of it was um, being a female and being body conscious and being in front of the media and having all those extra things to think about as well as thinking that I'm meant to be a role model that's meant to be the epitome of health. <laughs> How can I be like a bit a bit overweight. Like you can't do that, Steph. Um, So it was just always a bit of a battle and the transition period was, yeah, I always felt like I should be doing more. You're used to doing six hours a day, like one hour in the gym's not enough. And I would never feel like I really, yeah, achieved. Um, I did a Tony Robbins course right after I finished swimming, maybe six months. And he does this, this, um, I guess like, graph. It's called the wheel of life. And it's got nine aspects of it, you know, work, business, health, spirituality, finances, and you fill in where you rank yourself one to 10 on it. And you can see the whole wheel fill in. And obviously you want to have the wheel be the most round and <laughs> and symmetry, symmetrical as possible. And um, I rated my health and physical wellness two out of 10, six months out of the Olympics. And I remember just being so hard on myself, but thinking if someone else was to mark my piece of paper, they would mark it a 10 because they'd be like, oh, well, Olympic champion, like 10. But it was, I just felt like I was nowhere near what I was when I was at my best. Mm. And so finding my new best and finding the new focus, like I don't exercise to be the best in the world anymore. I exercise to, um, like have mental clarity and it always, the endorphins give me a real sense of um, confidence and belief that I can do things. Um, And so I need those things to actually make me a better businesswoman and to make me a better girlfriend and, you know, partner and daughter. Like they make me better as a person. So I do them. Hence then my non-negotiables. I don't do them because I'm like, oh, I like want to look like this person or I want to like lose weight or something. That's not my drive. It's Mm. very much a mindset driven holistic approach. Which I imagine is really freeing. Yeah, it is. As you say, if I'm doing it for the people I love the most, then actually I have to go and do it. Yeah. And, and doing it because you know, it gets the best out of yourself. If I want to go through each day trying to be the best that I can be, this is what I have to do. And so, you know, some days it's a, it might be a really tough, like, workout and I'd be sore the next day and other days it might just be, like, a walk because I was in Emerald yesterday so I didn't have a lot of time to work out and that's fine. I don't beat myself up 
for not following a program or a particular protocol. Yeah, the decision of what do I do the next day yeah. or where do I where do I go from yeah. there? So what's next for you? What's next on the evolution of kind of your identity, that next kind of transition for you? There's two big things that I'm really passionate about at the moment. Um, one, I'm starting a mentoring program um, for younger athletes in particular. I already work um, with quite a few current athletes, but I would love to be able to make that more accessible for um, other people that are especially going through that high school transitional phase um, and just to be able to share and be be a non-biased person in their team um, because, you know, it's always nice to have someone outside that can you can be your little rock and can be someone that, you know, makes you feel more on track. And I know I valued that so much when I was swimming. So I'd love to be able to give that gift. And then I'm doing quite a lot of work in India at the moment with swimming academies and really have just such a big passion to try and help them lift their swimming ability um, as a nation and create more swim awareness and swim safety there. Uh, Race Rice, my kids swimwear company is a social enterprise and a big part of that is gifting a swimming lesson to a child in a third world country every time someone buys a swimsuit. So it feels really fulfilling the things I'm doing now. Yeah, amazing. And mm. what's the connection with, with India and that passion? Oh, to be honest, I don't know. Um, I have always had a huge Indian following over social media. Every interview that's written about me is like redone in the Times of India or... <laughs> um, and it wasn't until I went there um, a couple of, like last year was the first trip I went for a couple of business opportunities. And yeah, I did. They just loved me, which was amazing because I did all the commentary for India for Rio. Right. Um, Thorpe and I did the coverage, which was great. And um, it's just such an amazing place with so many um, so many opportunities to serve and help, whereas I feel like sometimes in Australia we have so much available to us in terms of health and education and um, choices that it's nice to be able to help somewhere that doesn't necessarily have all that. Where you can make a Where you can really impact. make a massive difference. Yeah. yeah. So will that involve travelling? Yeah, over there? yeah. Um, I would love to move overseas again maybe next year. So I'm just keeping myself open to the universe and whatever will come will come. Yeah, exciting. So to round up, the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. Yeah. When I offer that up to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Well... <sighs> I think it's always been a couple, like two things because I've always loved that people know who I am and that through my um, through me being someone of recognition, I can serve other people in a really positive way. So, I guess to stand out, I always love to do that in a, a really positive, empowering way, and nothing fills me up more than being able to serve other people and see them get the best out of themselves. Um, be the vehicle for that. So I hope to embrace those things in all aspects of my life. Exciting times. Thanks so much, Steph. I'm wishing you all the best with Thank the next you. platforms ahead. Yeah. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. 
As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.